Good morning. Much better, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so today we're going to talk about what faith doesn't. So Matt's been talking the last uh, several weeks about Hebrews 11, and we're going to continue talking about Hebrews 11. But one of the things that's interesting is a couple interesting things about the, the verse, the, the uh, kind of the single verse in Hebrews 11 that we're going to come off from today. And I think that it, it goes towards this point, and that's that as we look at all these heroes of the faith, it's tempting to look at things that they have that we want to duplicate that have nothing to do with faith. There's some amazing, amazing heroes of the Old Testament, some amazing pictures in the Old Testament, and, and it's tempting to want to look at their issues of their strength of their character or their intelligence or their power or their battle savvy or their wisdom or anything else and miss the point that Hebrews 11 is telling us to emulate their faith. And so there's something that happens in the verse today which is fascinating, which I think leads to this. And so one of the things I want to do is look at what faith doesn't mean today so that we can begin to understand in, in contrast to that what it really does mean and what it really is. So here's the verse that we've been looking at. I'm going to read this and we'll pray really quickly for the message and we'll jump in from there. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And I want you to, to think about this for a second, that that is not a terribly helpful definition if it's a definition of faith. If that is intended to define what faith is for us, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Does that mean that everything that we want to happen, everything that we wish were true, everything that we hope would be the case, that that's what we should have confidence in? We just need to have more confidence? I really want it, so therefore I'm going to be more confident about it? If it's just the assurance about what we do not see, does that mean that anything we don't see, if we just believe hard enough, it will be the case? There's a lot of things we don't see and a lot of things we might want, but is that really the essence of faith? Well, it's not. We need more than that. And that's why Hebrews 11 doesn't stop there, but goes on to give us examples. It says, this is what the ancients were commended for. So, so let's look at their examples. Let's see what their lives tell us about what this faith means, this hope and this confidence and this assurance. What is it really saying to us? Let's pray, and we're going to look at that this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's always a privilege. Uh, it's always a glorious burden, Lord, to share your word and your message. And I pray that this morning it would be your heart, that it would be your words, that it would be your mind that, that we see today. I pray that you would give us all a glimpse of your glory and your majesty this morning. I pray that you would remind us how great you are. I pray that you would give us a clarity about faith, our response to you, and what that should look like and what that is not. And so we, we open our hearts and we open our ears this morning to you, and we ask that you fill us. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. So these are the verses in Hebrews 11, and I've actually taken the verse right before as well, even though it may not specifically seem connected. It is for, for a reason we'll get into in a second. It says this, he says, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they, they were drowned. And by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Something very interesting about that. And what's fascinating is that when you think of the walls of Jericho, what's the biblical hero you think of? Joshua. That's correct. And yet Joshua's not even mentioned in this verse. In fact, in this list of great Old Testament biblical heroes, Joshua's name is not 
mentioned, which is odd. Because when you read the story of Joshua, you may not even realize how often Joshua pops up through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Judges, but he's actually there quite a bit, or Joshua, rather. He's actually there quite a bit. He pops up, and every time he pops up, he does the right thing. One thing that's weird about Joshua compared to all the other biblical heroes is we have no record of any mistake that he ever made, which is odd. Because with Moses, we see the mistakes he made. With Abraham, we see the mistakes he made. With David, we see the mistakes he made. With Joshua, every time he shows up, he does the right thing. He's loyal, he's devoted, he's faithful, he's smart, he's savvy, he's a battle leader, he's a great, great man. There's nothing in him to not like. In fact, you compare him with Samson, who comes up in the list later, and he's like the complete opposite. There's very little in Samson to like. But Joshua's got it all, and yet he doesn't even make his name, doesn't even come into this list at all. Clearly, when you mention Jericho, you think of Joshua. That's, that's clear. An interesting thing about these two verses is there's only two people among all the Israelites who were at both of these events. And one of them is Joshua, and another one's a guy named Caleb. Moses wasn't even at both of these events. And so that one person who's at both of these events, that individual who's such an amazing hero in the Bible, there's just nothing to dislike about him, and everything in him is admirable, it's not even mentioned by name. It, notice it doesn't even say, by Joshua's faith, the walls of Jericho fell. It just says, by faith. And it could be the army's faith. It could be the people's faith. They all had to march around the walls. Why not list Joshua? And I think part of the reason is because Joshua would be one of those people that it would be very tempting to start emulating the wrong things. To start looking at what the character lessons are what the moral lessons are. How are we supposed to be like Joshua? And the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to be like Joshua in all the good qualities he has. That may be a good thing, but that's not the point of Hebrews 11. The point of Hebrews 11 is to emulate the faith, is to recognize that Joshua did not cause the walls of Jericho to fall. And when you look at the story, you see that even more clearly. It was not Joshua's plan. It was not Joshua's activity. Joshua didn't bring the walls down. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down is a catchy song, but wrong. <laughs> Joshua didn't even fight the battle of Jericho until after the walls fell down. <laughs> By faith, the walls fell down. So what I want to do today is I do want to talk about Joshua, even though the author of Hebrews doesn't. I want to talk about Joshua <laughs> a little bit today. And I actually want to look at four stories, and three of them are about Joshua. And the fourth one is about someone else equally important to God. And as we look at these four stories, I want you hopefully to see what faith is not. And by contrast, to see what faith is more clearly. Because the question becomes, as we read through about Abraham, and we read about Moses, and we read about Joshua, and we read about Enoch, and we read about all these guys, the question becomes, what do I do with all that? Now I have this weight of history and all these amazing people. I don't know about you, I am regularly reminded I'm not Abraham. I'm frequently aware that I am not Moses. And while I would love to have Enoch's epitaph, he walked with God, I don't know that I'm Enoch. How do we emulate their faith? And I hope, by looking at what faith doesn't do, we'll be able to get an idea of what that is. So we're going to look at these stories. First, just to bring us up to speed to where, where Joshua is, we started with that verse that says, the, by faith the Red Sea's part of the Israelites crossed through on dry ground. 
just think about that story for a second, okay? Everybody think about the Red Sea story, right? It's a story familiar to most of you. Think about that story. Somebody just tell me one or two points that you remember about that story. Go. They made it. Yes. That's a really important point. I like that. They get across. Right. What else? What's up? Yeah, the water split. Did they split fast? Does anybody remember? Actually says it took all night. Says it took all night. And what happened while it was taking all night? Was Moses doing anything? He was actually standing with his staff lifted in the air, right? So they're standing there at the Red Sea, and Moses lifts his staff, and the waters part, and it takes a long time, relatively speaking. Now, what made it feel really long to them? What made them really antsy to get across the Red Sea? Who remembers? Yeah, you all remember that part. (laughs) Yeah, the army of the Pharaoh is at their heels, is chasing after them. And how much of Pharaoh's army did Pharaoh decide to send? All of them, which turned out to be a really bad idea. But he sends the entire army. He's super mad. He's super serious. And they are, they, are, they are charging across the desert. They think that they've got the Israelites cornered, because really they do, because they're trapped. And God has them wait there while the Red Sea parts. And can you imagine that waiting, right? Oh, my gosh, come on. <laughs> What's going to happen? All right, but they get across. Remember that Joshua witnessed that. I want you to keep that in mind, that Joshua was there when this happened, that he watched this event. Okay? So then they, they do. In fact, they cross the Red Sea. Then what happens is they're, they're across. This is like the great send-off. They had the plagues. They've escaped from Egypt. They're across the Red Sea. Now, next stop, the promised land. But not so. God takes two years teaching them things before they get to the promised land. Did you know that? Two years. They park at Mount Sinai for about a year, and he just sits there and teaches them stuff. And what he has to teach them is this, and this is why it's so important. They have been slave people for generations now. And now they need to learn how to be promised land people. And so for two years, God teaches them how to be promised land people. He teaches them what it means to be a person of God, to belong to God and not to belong to the Pharaoh. He teaches them what it means to walk with God. He teaches them the law. And he teaches them every day. Every day he gives them the most kind of specific kind of tangible proof of who he is and his presence. He gives them the kinds of things you have longed for. If you've ever at any moment said to God, God, could you just be more clear? Could you just be more visible? They got all of it. Every day he feeds them directly from the dew of the ground with magic bread from heaven. That's kind of awesome. Every day they have a pillar of cloud that shows them that God is with them, that leads them where to go, that camps when they should camp and moves when they should move. Don't you want that? God, I'll just just bring that cloud. I'll go exactly where you want me to go. Should I go to Walmart or Target today? I'll follow the cloud. Costco? Okay. I don't have a membership, but whatever. But the cloud was there, and at night it turns into a fire so that they don't miss it. And they build this tabernacle, which is all about God's presence dwelling among them, being with them. Every day for two years, he shows them examples and proofs of his goodness. Every day for two years, he shows them examples and proofs of his power. Every day for two years, he shows them examples and proofs of his wisdom. Every day for two years, he proves to them he is present and with them. He brings water from a rock, lake of water from a rock. He brings food from the dew of the ground. He leads them every day and he gives them the law. 
And the anticipation is building. He's training them for this moment to enter the promised land, something that they've been anticipating for generations. Ever since it was promised to Abraham, it's been passed down from Hebrew to Hebrew, and it has motivated so much of their lives that they are constantly waiting and looking for that moment when God is going to free them and take them to the promised land. It's what motivated Moses to kill the Egyptian when he first wanted to start an uprising, which didn't work. It's what motivated them to head off into the desert was this promise. And so for two years, it's like you being trained for a job or going to school with the anticipation of a specific destination at the end. And then finally, finally, they arrive. They get there. Here they stand. The promised land is in front of them. And they argue a little bit about whether they should just go in or how they should go in or whether they should send spies. And they go back and forth. And finally, Moses says, that's fine. Let's send some spies in to scout out the land. And I think Moses is actually hoping that they will see when they send the spies in that everything God told them is true. And then they'll feel more comfort going in. And so it says this in our first story. And I call this Entering the Promised Land version 1.0 because this one doesn't stick. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? And how is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So Moses says, Go find out if there's any fruit. But what does Moses clearly believe they will find? Fruit. Right? He's like, bring back some grapes while you're at it. Because he knows when they get there, they're going to find the land is fertile and fruitful and has trees and has grape and all this stuff he's asking. He knows the answers to. Why does he know the answers? Because God already told him. God already told them a number of things about the land. And Moses is like, go in, find out that what God told us is accurate, and then come back. And so the spies go in, and when they come back, unanimously, they all give this report. They all give the same report at the first. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And we're told, in fact, that they found a cluster of grapes so big that it took two of them to carry it back out. Can you imagine? That's fruitful. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So this is their report. We went in, the land's there, it's fruitful, and there are people there. Now here's what's interesting. Let's compare that to what God had told them about the land, and let's see how he did. So the first thing God said was, the land is there. Is it there? Check. We're good with that one. Second thing God said is, the land is fruitful. Is it fruitful? Check. Third thing God said is, the land is occupied. Is it occupied? It is. In fact, it's amazing. They come back and give a report of all the people that they saw, but God already gave them a list which was actually larger than that they gave. God is more accurate about who's in the land than they are. But they shouldn't be surprised. He already told them. And in fact, he already told them, I will drive out the Hittites and all these people that you saw. I'll drive them out from in front of you. They're there. There should be no surprise to this. So, so far, God is three for three. And the last thing he told them was, the land is yours. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. They went in, they saw the three for three were true, but it's that fourth one they're not sure about. Everything God has given them, everything God has shown them should lead them to say, hey, this should be ours. But they're not so sure. 
what happens is that the 12 spies all saw exactly the same thing, and they all saw exactly the same God for two years, and they all saw exactly the same events and the same fruit, and everything is the same. But 10 of the spies came out with a very different conclusion than the other two. Ten of them said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all of we people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them, which incidentally makes them about 75 feet tall, which I don't think you need to send spies in the land to discover. You can see that from the border. But notice what happened here. They said, we cannot attack these people because they are stronger than us. Just given the basic human nature of where the Israelites have been and what they've come from and who they're looking at, this is probably a true statement. They probably are stronger than us. And maybe attacking them would generally be a foolish idea. So they look at everything God said and said, that's all true, but we can't defeat them. And then because of that fear, what do they do? They change their whole story of the land. Now they say it devours the people living in it, meaning it's not fruitful. At this point, the grapes have been eaten. They're like, see, there's nothing there. And the people are giants. They're 75 feet tall. They're monstrous. But Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, they give a very different report. They say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb say, don't be afraid of them. Why? Because they're not stronger than us? No, they don't say that, do they? They say, don't be afraid of them because they're not stronger than God. Because God will protect us. Don't worry about them. Joshua and Caleb also don't ignore the people, do they? They don't say, there's nobody there, it's all good, right? In response to the, the report that the ten spies gave, Joshua and Caleb don't change their story. They don't say, oh, there's nobody there. Or, oh, they like us, they won't fight us. They don't say any of that. And this is really important that we understand that one of the things faith doesn't do is that faith doesn't ignore the giants. It is not faith to simply look at the world and just have this optimism which denies reality. That's not faith. Faith is not saying there are no giants. There's nobody that hates us. There's nobody in opposition. How many Christians, when they become Christians, become very surprised that the world suddenly doesn't become their oyster, that life doesn't suddenly lay down and behave like a trained puppy? because we gave them a wrong idea. Joshua and Caleb don't ignore the giants. They don't say the land is fruitful and nobody's there. They aren't there. Don't look up. It's not just optimism. Faith is not simply saying everything will work out okay just because I want it to. That's not faith. Do we not tell our kids the worst kind of lie if we tell them that everything will work out the way they want it to in life? Isn't that just wrong? Don't you know that by now? <laughs> that's not faith. That's that, that's that blind confidence in a hope that we don't have reason to hope in. But what do they do? They don't ignore the giants, but they also don't ignore the God who's much bigger than the giants. See, the other spies saw the giants, the same giants, but they ignore the promises. They ignore God. They ignore the fact that God said the land is yours. So the perspective, the real perspective is the one of faith, which has a perspective that says that there are things we can't see which are real and that our God is bigger than the giants that we can see. 
He's infinitely bigger. He's transcendently bigger. You can't even describe him in terms of size. They're 75 feet tall, and he's so much infinitely bigger than that, you can't even put it into feet. But they don't ignore the giants. Instead of ignoring the giants, they count on God. You see that? Good. So let's go to story number two. Story number two, the second story, Entering the Promised Land 2.0. So because, in fact, they have this discussion, and most of the Israelites are afraid of the, the giants that are there, God gives all of them what they want. He says, you don't want to go into the scary land with the scary people? We won't go there. And in, they wander the desert until that generation dies out, and the only two that are left that were here at this initial time are Joshua and Caleb. We don't even discuss what a frustrating 40 years it must have been for Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> but we wanted to go in. <laughs> but when they get back there, now's the chance. Now's the moment. Here they stand. It's a new generation of Israelites plus Joshua and Caleb. They get another opportunity to count on God. And there's an interesting thing that happens. And that's that of all the times that God could bring them back, he brings them back when the Jordan, which is the river between them and the promised land, is at its height. It's at its flooding season. Now, I don't know what movies you may have seen where people are getting baptized in the Jordan, and you may think of it as this nice, placid, calm place, or you may drive over the Rio Grande and think it's something like that. And let me tell you that neither of those pictures are accurate. The Jordan at flooding season is a raging, rolling, massive, flooding river. It flows into the Dead Sea, and when it's flooding, it's literally over, going over the banks of the, of the river so that you can't even tell where the river begins. And this is great for the fruitfulness of the land. It explains part of that. But it's not great for crossing. And of all times, for God to lead them back to the promised land, they've had 40 years of wandering. God could have picked a different season. But he brings them back right at this moment when it's at the height of flooding, and he says... To Joshua, God says to Joshua, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. What? Now I want you to think about this a second. Joshua, he's about to enter the promised land, and there's this massive river there before, and he's thinking, we need to cross this river. Has he seen this before? He has seen this before. God's done this at the Red Sea. It is very reasonable. It's very possible that Joshua thinks, before this is said to him from God, Joshua thinks, okay, I've got to find a staff. <laughs> and you know what? This will be awesome because I'll lift the staff and the waters will part and we don't even have anybody at our heels. There's nobody chasing us. Back then, we were really nervous. This can take a couple days if it needs to. It's no big deal. All no pressure at our back. In fact, all the enemies are ahead of us. We can wait. And so at this moment, in a, in a scenario that looks surprisingly similar, that thematically would be great because it would be like a circle, right? They left Egypt by crossing a sea, and now they're going to enter the promised land by crossing this amazing river. It would be kind of a nice little loop if God did it exactly the same way. And instead, God says to Joshua, what I want you to do is when you walk, when those priests get right up to the edge of the lake, edge of the river, I want them to keep walking right into it. So let's look at the differences. Let's think about this. Here's what he says to them. Joshua said to the Israelites, okay, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know. I love this. 
This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. There's the full list, by the way, that they missed when they scouted the land out. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Think about this realistically, what this means, though. He did not say, as soon as they set foot in the Jordan, the waters will evaporate. He said, upstream, there will be a blockage, and the water will stop flowing. Does that happen instantaneously? It does not. It means you set your foot in the Jordan, and nothing appears to happen where you are. You understand that? And you keep walking. And nothing appears to happen for the first many, many steps that you're walking into this incredible river. In fact, all you feel is the flow downstream still trying to pull you into the Dead Sea. And I love that Moses says, this is how you'll know God is with you when you step into the rivers and see nothing happen. I'm sure they're like, wait, what? We would much prefer the Moses approach. Let's part the waters first. Then we'll enter. That's not how it's going to work. That's not what's going to happen. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. It's entirely reasonable to read this to understand that it isn't until the priests reached the middle of the Jordan that it was dry. Can you picture that? They have to walk halfway across before the water's actually gone. And those first 20, 30 steps are just the worst. Right? The priests are like, it's not working, it's not working. And then finally one of the priests is like, wait, wait, wait. I think it's a little bit shallower. Maybe. I hope. <laughs> finally, by the time they get to the middle, it's, yeah, okay. Yes, yes. Ah, perfect. Then they stand there while everybody passes by. And the priests, the leaders, the priests have to be the ones first out and the last ones to leave. And as they stand there and they watch this happen, just think about how different this is from Joshua's previous experience of faith at the Red Sea. Think about the differences for a moment. At the Red Sea, they were told to stand and wait for God to act. Don't step into the Red Sea, wait. You got to wait all night, but you got to wait. At the Jordan, he says, step into the river first and then I will act. Those are very different positions, aren't they? And now, think about this to make it even worse. When they're standing at the Red Sea, what is all the circumstantial pressure upon them to do? Is it to wait or to move? It's to move because the Egyptians are chasing them. So at the moment when they most want to go forward, God says, hang out and wait for me to act first. Don't build that boat. <laughs> Don't take that raft. Don't put on your swim trunks. Just wait. And think of it the other way. When they're standing at the Jordan, where is all the pressure? Where is all the danger now? It's in front of them. They're about to enter the promised land where all the scary giants are. And at this point, God says, don't wait. Go. Step. Move. 
See, this is one of the things, too, that we need to realize about faith. We already mentioned that, as we talked about, faith doesn't ignore the giants. And this Jordan is a big giant. But the other thing we need to remember about faith is it doesn't always look the same. You understand that? Just because God had you respond in faith one point in one way doesn't mean that that becomes the formula by which you can always respond in faith going forward. If, if Joshua insisted on using this, the uh, staff to part the seas, he's not relying on God. He's relying on the staff. He's relying on a mechanics. He's relying on a formula that worked with Moses. But we know, because it's obvious from the stories, that the mechanics aren't what did it. There's nothing about lifting a staff which causes a great body of water to part. And there's nothing about setting foot in it while carrying a box that causes it to part. Because faith is faith. It isn't always going to look exactly the same. And you cannot simply look at people you admire and look at the way they respond to God and say, I will do exactly what they do. Because as far as I know, there's never been another person in history that God told to build an ark like he told Noah. There's never been another person in history that I know that God told to sacrifice his son like he did Abraham. There's never been another person in history that God told to step into the middle of the Jordan and expect not to be swept down to the Dead Sea. This is why the author of Hebrews wants us not to just look at the people and what they do and who they are and say they are people of great character. I will simply emulate their actions because actions are reflections of faith, but they themselves are not faith. Right? So faith doesn't always look the same. And in this case, they don't count on it looking the same. They don't count on a formula that God gave them. Joshua and the priests, they just count on God. They just say, if we're going to get across this Jordan, it's going to be God. Let's look at the third story, entering the promised land 3.0. They do get across the Jordan, but now they've got all these enemies. They've got the scary giants, and this is the point of the story that Hebrews mentions. They've got Jericho. Jericho is... In an understated way, the scripture says, the gates are barred and it is secured. This is one of the most heavily fortified cities in history. It is fortified in such a way that they're very smart. The citizens of Jericho is a very prosperous city and a very safe one because they actually built their walls right into the terrain. In other words, basically the mountains become their walls. That's pretty good. It's hard to bring down a mountain. And so they always have the upper hand. They always have the high ground. They've got plenty of food and plenty of water because they're right next to the flooding Jordan River. It's a great situation for them. They've been able to hold this spot, and they can continue to hold it because they can take pot shots at everybody who comes at them. They can stay in their city as long as they need, and they can aim whatever kind of uh, things they want to throw or shoot or fire at people from, this, from the city, and they're totally safe. Now, this is the very first enemy that they encounter as they cross the Jordan. Now, you, you probably may not know this, but if you read through Exodus, you'll see little hints that Joshua is, in fact, a battle guy. He's a guy that loves to fight battles. But ironically, he's a guy that God almost never lets fight battles. There's a moment when the, the whole golden calf incident, remember when Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron creates this golden calf and they have this orgy. They have this big party down below. And as they're coming back down, Joshua is up on the mountain with Moses. Again, one of those moments where we see that Joshua makes the right choice. He's in the right place. They start coming down, and it's this big party and revelry. And, of course, what Joshua hears, he says to Moses, Oh, there's a battle down below. Let's go. <laughs> and Moses says, No, it's not a battle. They're, they're partying. But this is how Joshua sees things. 
So this is probably for him. He's probably eager. He's like, finally, 42 years, and we get to enter our first battle. And so we see this in the story. This is what it says. When Joshua was near Jericho, why do you think he was near Jericho? What do you suspect? I think he's scouting the land. I think he's figuring out how are we going to get in. He's making his plans. He's thinking, we've got this big old fortified city. How are we going to sneak people in so that we can undo the gates? How are we going to get people in? What are we going to do? What's going to be our plan? It says, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And if you don't believe Joshua was a warrior guy, watch his reaction to this, right? There's a guy with a drawn sword, and Joshua says, oh, Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Is that confrontational? Yes. Who's side on, buddy? Let's have it out right now. Neither, he replied, which is an interesting answer. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. Like a million people just crossed the Jordan. I would bar my gates as well. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Pause. This is a really interesting way to begin this conversation. Not, hey, I'm going to help you get Jericho, or let me tell you what the plan is, but see, like Joshua is supposed to look at the barred gates of Jericho and see that it belongs to him. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And Joshua's like, I missed that part. I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with this king and fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now let's be super, super honest. This is a ridiculous plan. This is the dumbest plan ever. I don't care how many commentaries you read which try to explain to you how the marching around the city set vibrations that then were amplified by the trumpets blowing and the loud shout of the army. They're just wrong. That doesn't happen that way. You want to try, go pick a building in New York City, which is less fortified than Jericho, and give it a shot. This is a dumb plan. It makes no sense. This plan does not have a chance of working. It is as dumb as raising a staff over the Red Sea. It is as dumb as walking headlong into the rivers of Jordan. It is a ridiculous plan. It's not a battle plan. And how about the fact that the actual battle moment gets no instruction whatsoever? Do you notice that? He's like, the walls fall down, and then what do I do? You run in. Wait. What? This is an amazing, amazing plan for its lack of sense. And this is what This is what God tells. This is what he tells Joshua to do. Do you understand how in telling Joshua this is how you're going to fight, he actually removes any potential possibility that Joshua will be the war hero here? Do you you see that? I mean, he's like, you're going to do all this, and no one's ever going to say, wow, Joshua walked around that wall really well. It's not even Joshua. Joshua doesn't even get to blow the trumpet. Faith doesn't ignore the giants. Joshua didn't look at Jericho and say, no big deal, we'll just march right in. 
it's not a problem. No, it's fortified. It doesn't ignore the giants. Faith doesn't always look the same. I guarantee you Joshua had never heard of a battle plan like this. I guarantee you. But here's the other thing. Faith doesn't mean knowing how. See, sometimes we think that God calls us to do things, and we think our part is to figure it out, and if we haven't figured it out, we don't have enough faith. No, that isn't it. See, Joshua would never have come up with this plan, would he? Never, in a million years. When he's walking around Jericho, he's not thinking, I bet what we should do is just keep walking around it. No. Faith doesn't mean knowing how. Thinking that God, when he calls us to something, intends us to figure out how to do it, that's a, that's a, that's a really, really ridiculous question. Think for a moment. Let's think about a sin in your life that you have a hard time conquering, that just keeps popping up, right? It comes up over and over and over. Or an emotional state in your life of depression or anxiety or fear. Think of those things that you cannot seem to fix. And if you think that faith is figuring out how to fix it, coming up with the right plan, you're wrong. Think about this. This is as ridiculous as, let's say that you have a surgeon who's performing a a surgery on you, a major surgery. And so you go to the surgeon, and you really trust this surgeon because he's the best. And he says, this is the surgery I'm going to do. If at that point your answer to him is, surgeon, surgeon, I promise you I'm going to do everything I can to make this surgery work out well. I'm going to study up on all the books on the surgery you're about to do. I'm going to watch all the videos. That's what my wife does, but she's a weird person. But I'm going to do all these things about this surgery, and I'm going to make sure that you do it right. And when I'm there and you're operating on me, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you do a great job and that you're able to fix me. doesn't make any sense. Because what is your job when the surgeon is working on you? To lay there and not get in the way. Um, My wife did one of her many surgeries awake by her choosing, and... Uh, she talked her doctor into it and because she likes these things, not surgeries. She doesn't like surgeries. No one likes surgeries, but she likes to know what's happening. And so she, um, but she's laying there, and the, and the surgeon, actually, before she went in, the surgeon said, I will let you stay awake on one condition. And she said, what? And he said, that you cannot help me. <laughs> and I think God sometimes says that to us. Like, I'll do the surgery, but you cannot help me. That's what he's telling Joshua. Don't help me here. Just do what I'm asking you to do. It doesn't mean knowing how. You don't have to know how. God is not waiting for you to figure it out. God is not waiting for you to figure out how to do what it is that God has designed you to do. He's not waiting for that. God is not waiting for you to tell him how it should be done. God is not even waiting for you to commit to him that that you will be what he is making you. (laughs) That's not what he's waiting for. He's just waiting for you to lie there and let him work. Bottom line is, Joshua counted on God. Joshua knew that what was going to make the walls fall down and what was going to cause them to win the battle was God. That's what he knew. That's what he understood. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, not because of Joshua, not because of of who Joshua was, his great battle savvy, his great strength of character. The best thing Joshua did was hear what God said and pass it on to the Israelites. So I told you I was going to tell you four stories. Those are the three about Joshua. The fourth story I really want you to think about, calling Entering the Promised Land 4.0. And I told you this story would be about someone equally important to God. And that person is you. What's your story? What is your promised land? What is that thing that it seems to be taking forever to get to? 
took them 42 years to get into the promised land from the moment they left Egypt, not to mention the hundreds of years prior to that of waiting. What is your promised land? Is it, is it your marriage that just isn't quite what you think it should be? Is it your children? Is it a sin that you can't conquer? Is it an emotional state that just is wedded into who you are in such a way that you think you'll never be without it? Is it a job? Is it effectiveness in ministry? Is it a sense of success? What, what, is, what is the promised land that you feel genuinely God has for you? Does God want your marriage better? I think we'd all agree yes. God wants those things for you. So what is that promised land that you're not entering? And when we say, take that promised land by faith, what does that mean? Well, let's look at what it doesn't mean. It does not mean ignore the giants. What are the giants in that promised land for you? What is it that makes it so difficult to take? What is it that makes it impossible to conquer? What is it that you cannot get past? Don't ignore them. Stop telling yourself, oh, if anybody else could do this, it's not anybody else, it's you. Stop pretending that there aren't things that make life difficult. Do you understand that in all the fairy tale stories, we have the confidence that it will end up with a great ending, but do you understand that right now we live in the moment of the curse? Don't ignore the giants. What are they? But can you also understand that faith won't always look the same? There are other things in your life, other promised lands that you've entered, other places you've conquered. And you say, I did that with this, why can't I do that now? Or you look at someone else who was able to overcome what you can't overcome, and you say, they did it this way, why can't I just do that? It won't look the same. You can't just count on that. We have got to stop looking for the formulas and the promises and the principles and the keys to success, which are going to make it all just work. Which leads to the next thing. Faith doesn't mean knowing how. I do not care how many books you read on success and the key to life. They may or may not apply to you at all. As a pastor of 25 years, I have read enough church growth books to build the walls of Jericho. Probably not true, but it's a good statement. And you know what I've decided about them? They're all written by good godly men with a sincere heart and a genuine faith. And they have seen God do amazing things. And they think that if they tell me to do what they did, God will do the same amazing things for me. And they are wrong. They're wrong. Because God's desire for me and every pastor is a relationship with me that goes beyond the principles of those books. Parenting books are the same way. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you, you laugh. Parents laugh. Because what the parenting books, the problem with the parenting books is that our children never read them. And they don't behave the way they're supposed to according to the parenting book. The other problem is I've seen people on diametrically opposed sides of all these parenting arguments who do just fine on both sides. It doesn't mean figuring it out. We are so keyed in in our culture to finding those keys to success, those principles to life, the ways to make life work on our behalf. But that's not faith. Find principles that are good, that work for you. Fantastic. But can you count on them? 
Is there a single principle in the stories of Joshua's encounters that would be good to write down and encourage other people to follow? Could Joshua say, when you come to a river that is flooding, step into it? Could he say, when you come to a mountain that you want to knock over, march around it and be really noisy? No, of course not. But there's one more thing it means, and for our stories, this is so important, or doesn't mean, rather. Faith does not mean stronger willpower. Uh, you have to hear this clearly, because whenever we talk about faith in the church, and I encourage you to go home and take the promised land by faith, the immediately the feel to you is that you're going to go home, and you're going to work harder, and you're going to try harder, and you're going to desire better, and you're just going to dig down deep and make it happen. You do understand, don't you, that the walls of Jericho did not fall because Joshua had an amazing strength of will, right? You understand that. It isn't because he wanted those walls to fall. The Jordan did not part because Joshua just bent all his energy to it. We think that trying harder is the same as faith, and not only is it not the same, but often it is the antithesis. Not always, but often. It's not just about gearing down and trying with all your will and all your might to make it happen. That is not faith. Because when you do that, what are you counting on to make it work? What are you counting on to save you? Yes! The reason Hebrews does not mention the name Joshua, I suspect, is because it wants to remind us that even Joshua did not count on Joshua. See, if I'm in a fix, Joshua's the guy I want, (laughs) right? He's he's a guy I want to lean on. But the Scripture's reminding us that even Joshua did not count on Joshua. He counted on God. See, faith is not a matter of will and determination. Faith is a matter of submission and trust. And there's an interesting thing that happens when you think of faith in terms of will and determination. You find things to boast in, Right? You can walk around and say, I'm so, this happened because I'm so committed to God. That sounds like it's about God, but is it really? I am so committed. I was so committed to God when he asked me to walk around the walls. I walked around the walls. I am just the most committed person. I'm so devoted. I am so faithful. But it's really hard to boast about being submissive, isn't it? I am so submitted. I am the most submissive, surrendered person ever. You're just like, What? <laughs> But I think there's a point to that. It's not something you boast in, right? I was such a good surgery patient. I just laid there under the anesthesia. (laughs) Faith is not a matter of will and determination. It's not about leaving here today and trying harder to enter that promised land. It's about being willing to leave here and say, God, I see the giants, and I don't have a clue how to get past them. I don't know what the answer is. And if the answer is to stand and wait for you, I'll stand and wait. And if the answer is to step into the river, I'll step into the river. See, it's not passive, but it's submissive. You understand? I would love for you to think about that promised land that is hard for you to enter, specifically in your head. That thing that you've given up hope, that you have no confidence will come to pass. I would like you to think about that thing. And I'd like you to pray about it and lift it up to God, but I would like you to not even begin to make a commitment to God to change it. Because God did not go to God. I mean, Joshua did not go to God 
and say, God, we're going to take this land for you. Joshua went to the people and said, God will take this land for us. Joshua did not go to God and say, I'm going to bring down the walls of Jericho. Joshua went to the people and said, God is going to bring down the walls of Jericho. I don't want you to go to God and tell him how you're going to make it better, how you're going to fix it, how you're going to make it all work, how you've got this life thing figured out and you're finally going to conquer it. Not even tell him that with his help. That's like going to the surgeon and say, we're going to do this with, my, with your help. <laughs> no, you're going to do it. God's going to do it. But take it to him and tell him that you're counting on him. Because faith counts on God. That's it. That's really it. Abraham counted on God to preserve Isaac when it didn't look like that would happen. Joseph counted on God to bring the visions and the dreams about when it didn't look like it could happen. Joshua counted on God to get them into the promised land. And only God could do it. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. The confidence of what we hope for is God. And the assurance of what we do not see is God. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let's pray and let's bring the worship team back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that we can count on, that we can count on your goodness, and we can count on your power, and we can count on your wisdom, and we can count on your presence, Lord. There are things in our lives, Lord, that have caused us to question that, to doubt that. At times, we don't feel like we can count on you. We've got we to gotta shore up our reserves. We've got to make plans. We've got to figure it out. Sometimes, Lord, we just don't believe your goodness enough to think that you want to do those things. We think we have to earn your, your attention and your respect. We have to somehow convince you to be good to us. God, if we have to convince you to be good to us, we are lost forever because we cannot convince you of anything. But Lord, if we can submit and trust that you are the God who is good, you are the God who is powerful, you are the God who is wise, and you are the God that is present with us now, then as Joshua says, we can take the land because God is with us. Not because we have a plan, not because we're so smart, not because we're so wise, but because God is great. Our God is great. We count on you being great. We just say this morning, Lord, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to change it. We don't know what building even as a church we should be in. But we count on you to bring it all to pass. We count on you to tell us when to step and when to wait. We count on you to speak loudly enough for us to hear, not on our own abilities to hear. We count on you, God, because in the final analysis, there is nothing else that we can count on.